0: This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, coming to you from Galligal Land, and this is the full story, newsroom edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. We live in a time of increasing polarisation and tribalism, but it's also a time when we are confronting extraordinary crises that require public debate of complex issues that have no single solution. There's no doubt the media has played a role in increasing polarisation, but it also has the tools to mediate a more nuanced conversation. So how should we discuss and debate the most pressing issues of our time? Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Live News Editor Patrick Keneally about the need for nuance. It's Friday, the 3rd of February. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Patrick. Morning. Welcome to the first newsroom edition of 2023. Lenore, we had an essay on our site this week that really grabbed readers' attention in a way stories like this don't tend to. Tell me about what the story was and why you think it had that effect.
1: Look, it was this lovely essay by a writer called Joseph Earp, and it was about how the author John Hughes had allegedly plagiarised a review that Joseph had written years ago for some obscure publication, you know, he got 40 bucks for it. But the twist was that John Hughes had been his teacher in high school when Joseph was a kid that didn't really felt like he fitted in at school and he said, been his saviour. Hughes had seen him for the first time, had encouraged his writing and he absolutely idolised him and looked up to him and then he was in this position where the person who had had such a massive impact on his life had then plagiarised him or allegedly Mm plagiarised him. The thing that I think was unusual about the piece was the nuance in it. It was really nuanced. He was both angry with Hughes but still incredibly fond of him and he kind of still idolised him. And I think that was unusual because often if someone plagiarises someone, that's it, they're cancelled, they're all bad, it's black and white, you know. And that kind of emotional intensity and emotional nuance was unusual And it was also unusual that the piece did so well. Like it got something like 300,000 views or something and we've got metrics where we can look at it and viewers were reading it right to the end. Like Mm. People were engrossed by this piece. And that's unusual because nuanced pieces, pieces that aren't clearly with you or against you, right or wrong, that don't have a totally clear, unequivocal point of view in them, they don't usually do that well. So the piece was unusual in its content and it was unusual in my experience that a piece with that kind of content, that kind of complexity and nuance did so incredibly well and readers were so incredibly engrossed in it and reading it right to the end and so many readers all around the world. So it was an interesting piece from that point of view.
0: Also this week, Jim Chalmers wrote a 6,000 word essay for the monthly and it seemed to have the complete Opposite response. Uh, Patrick, can you tell us a little bit about how the media has reacted to this essay by Chalmers?
2: So Chalmers' essay was basically saying that we need new economic thinking to deal with the multiple challenges that we face globally and in Australia with the economy and really looks at how we can readdress the relationship between the state and between private enterprise that kind of Issue that social democrats have been working on since the 19th century, I guess, in in different ways. So in many ways, none of this was particularly groundbreaking, but the response to it has been just off the charts. So we had the spectator calling it communism, we had the Australian today calling it communism in their editorial I mean, cartoon. It,
1: it's basically descapital, right? Like <laughs> yeah. in different yeah. words.
2: Yeah. yeah, exactly. But look, I, I don't think there's anything particularly surprising about Chalmers essay you know these ideas that we should redefine the relationship between the state and private enterprise has been around for a long time even God forbid Mark Latham was writing about this 20 years ago in civilizing global capital mm. like these are not new ideas um,
1: and if you were a treasurer in his fiscal situation you would want the private yeah. sector to invest in <laughs> stuff too wouldn't you <laughs> Yeah,
2: and it's true that we do we don't know what's coming down the line mm. and we can't be fixed to the orthodoxies of existing economic thought always, because eventually it will turn out to be wrong at some point, as it has in the past. Mm,
1: mm. And I think the interesting thing, I agree with Pat, that I didn't think the essay was particularly remarkable at all. I mean, it was an interesting read. It was not, I think the thing about it was it was not very detailed Mm. and it was quite nuanced. And I think that was the dangerous thing for Chalmers and possibly the reason why parts of the media like quite literally lost their minds over it, because it sort of meant that... The culture warrior columnists and the opposition could impose upon it a kind of ideological purchase point, like, aha, See, we thought they were socialists. They didn't give us a reason to say that really before the election. They had, you know, quite annoyingly practical things on the table like we want to increase wages. It's difficult to be the party that wants to lower wages or after the election, well, they intervened in the energy market, but, you know, that was to lower power prices. So it was hard to get a sort of a pure culture war ideological purchase point on the Labor Party until – Chalmers wrote this essay, which was pretty woolly, actually. It was a nuanced ideas essay rather than a really practical essay. And that meant then, ha-ha, they had a purchase point. They could kind of superimpose on it what they wanted to say, which is, you know, basically Labor is dangerous, socialist, whatever, whatever. Then what happened was the actual arguments in the essay, which were nuanced, got completely swamped by these very vehement counterpoints that the columnists were writing. And then Chalmers found himself in this position of having to come out, you know, in interviews and going, um, that's not what I meant. I didn't really say that. Yeah. And it was just really interesting how the debate couldn't cope with this nuanced essay and responded with these very vehement points of view. So I thought it was quite interesting that nuance in that sense was treated in the way that nuance is often treated in the debate at the moment.
2: The danger in this is that far more people will have read those yeah. reactionary mm. pieces to it than ever read the, it read the 6,000 word essay sitting behind a paywall. So <laughs> uh, you do risk a danger. The other thing I thought was interesting in the response to it is like the AFR accused Chalmers of setting fire to the Hawking legacy. That was the legacy. longest
1: editorial I have ever read in my life. Like that was yeah. as long as the essay. Yeah <laughs> and you know
2: mm. Angus Taylor's again, saying shows the Hawke-Keating legacy was dead and signalled a throwback to the Whitlam era. But I think the interesting thing about that is that hindsight is always 2020. So mm. there's no nuance in the past for many people. Mm, it's, mm. you know, this was unequivocally good, the Hawke and Keating reforms. But it ignores the fact that they were incredibly mm. controversial at the time.
1: And also the fact that, I mean, it sort of read a little bit, you know, eighties, nineties to me. Like, remember public-private partnerships? That was all yeah, the go.
2: Exactly. And mm. it,
1: and I don't know how different it is from that, really. It enabled the Greens to call it capitalism
0: turbocharged on one hand, mm. while you know the you know right-wing
1: commentators were calling mm. it communism. How can it be both of those things? Well, and also there is a quite legitimate debate to be had, which wasn't had at all, mm. about how well we have gone when we try to use that public-private mix in policy making hasn't always gone that well. You know, it hasn't always worked that well. There is a legitimate debate about how to do that. And then he went a step further, chalmers I mean, and was talking about impact investing, like philanthropy, working with government. Now, sure, great, but there are a whole lot of questions there as well about whose priorities you're serving and how that will work and there's a lot of questions, I think, and a lot of discussion to be had about Chalmers' essay but not necessarily the one that was being one had. One
2: of the biggest questions I came out of it with is he mentioned aged care as one of the areas mm. and we know that private um, it's not working investment well. in aged care has not been, you know, very well managed at no. all. Yeah, well, and in childcare
1: there was, you know, there's been lots of um, points where we had to change the model for child care because the public-private kind of model wasn't working very well.
2: Undoubtedly, it's still a good thing for a treasurer to go out and expand on these ideas. I, I think one thing that enabled all those reforms in the 80s and 90s was the ability of Keating and others to go out and sell these reforms and you know, in in detail, and there were debates that rolled for years about this kind of reform.
0: It's interesting that you say that, Patrick, because obviously times have changed. Mm -hmm. So what's driving this phenomenon where we can only have one simple reaction to a complex, nuanced debate like Chalmers was trying to start? (sighs)
1: So... The first time I started thinking about this was like back in 2013 when I read an article in Gizmodo and the woman who wrote it talked about the valley of ambiguity. Um, She was trying to explain why, you know, I mean we're talking 10 10 years ago, so Mm. she was trying to explain why some stories went crazy viral and some stories just died. And her analysis was the ones that went viral were the ones where there was a very, very clear point of view because to go viral, you have to be shared. And in order to be shared, you need to know that the people with whom you are sharing that story are going to agree with you. So back then, 10 years ago, that meant that the story had to have be just an explainer or an investigation where it was very clear, here are the facts that we have uncovered, or a cat video where, you know, nobody could take offence. And I remember at the time reading and, and having a kind of oh shit moment because I think I'm just looking, she said, the stories that fell into this valley of ambiguity, i.e. I didn't get shared, included political news with a long and tangled backstory attached or opinion pieces that considered different points of view. And... Back in 2013, I was a political editor and that's like literally what I did. And I thought, oh, no, I'm doomed. <laughs> um, but I guess what that sort of started me thinking about nuance. But I think then that thing that she identified, why do people share, got kind of sucked into the vortex of political polarisation and algorithms and the valley of ambiguity became like an abyss of ambiguity where it became harder and harder for nuanced articles or articles that perhaps considered multiple points of view to be shared because people sort of divided into tribes. And then, you know, if you're sharing something with your tribe, you know that your tribe is going to agree with it if you're on the left or the right. I think, you know, it was the beginning of that phenomenon, but I think she sort of identified something.
2: Trevor Noah, who's the South African-born comedian, In the u.s he said recently nuance doesn't sell well in america because it means that when you're doing something with nuance you can't take a stand and you can't fight Mm. against someone else Mm. and what's really driving some of these is the list of polarizing subjects in the u.s is just growing and growing Mm. so gun rights um you know vaccinations abortion abortion, all of these issues which Whether the election actually happened or not. Yeah, Yeah. decades ago were not polarising issues but have become so now and you wonder what is driving this.
1: Mm -hmm. I think you could say a whole lot of media companies are now basing their business model on that polarisation because in a splintered, you know, media environment where the audience is all over the place, if you own a tribe, if a tribe is loyal to you, they keep coming back and they keep listening to your shows and they keep listening to your ads and, you know, paying your subscription and you make money out of it. So there's a whole lot of reinforcing things, driving the the difficulties of nuanced pieces getting anywhere. I thought
0: it was really interesting that in the essay, Chalmers actually said that the problems of government don't and shouldn't permit one simple solution set. Mm. And yet... I'm the- not sure they read that. <laughs> What are the consequences, Lenore, when we don't get this right? Because surely how we respond to these crises is a debate that every Australian should have a stake in.
1: I mean, I think it's a challenge. It's a challenge for policymakers. It's a challenge for the media. And, you know, bit by bit we are slightly adapting what we do. I know when I was a columnist, whereas once you could have a sort of almost a drop lead, you could very gently lead people into a column... Now you almost really have to kind of put your conclusion in the lead so it becomes the headline and then you can lead people through your thinking and how you considered this point of view or that point of view and where and how you got to that conclusion. But you sort of do have to telegraph right up front where you get to in order for people to read. I think our political editor, Catherine Murphy, does that really well. Like she can lead people through her thinking but in a way that brings people in with her at the beginning and then she can kind of unpack the nuance in the body of the piece. I think as editor and as editors, we often look at complicated and th- things and think, mm, we're going to do that as an explainer because if the headline says, you know, this complicated thing explained, then they know that it's going to be purely factual information so they're more likely to read it and read it to the end and they're more likely to share it because it's not really going to be controversial. You know it's going to be quite factual. So there are, there are ways and means of navigating the valley of the chasm of ambiguity, this sort of chasm when nuance goes to die. But, you know, it's tricky and it's evolving. Patrick,
0: we have a big issue facing the nation this year, a referendum on The Voice. How are we going to tackle the, the nuance required in that debate?
2: This is going to be a very difficult task, I think, to navigate nuance in the debate on the voice. There are genuine concerns within Indigenous community about different models and about how it will proceed. There's a lot of support for it to go ahead, in both within the Indigenous community and within the broader Australian community. But the bar for a referendum is just so high that I worry that, Perhaps it's too high for there to be any nuance involved in the arguments. I don't know what you think, Manu.
1: Um I wrote a note from the editor last week on this because I do think there's a particular responsibility on the media to stay calm and to really understand the detail of this and to keep things kind of civilised. Like it is the easiest thing in the world to just drive traffic by running every sort of incendiary thing that everybody says. So... On the one hand, yes, we've got a duty to report all the different points of view about this and there are quite legitimate different points of view. But I think anybody looking at this debate could see that there are some people who are really driving it to be divisive, are really wanting to be divisive. And it's super easy to be divisive with a slogan, with a simple kind of criticism which you can challenge But to say it requires four words and to challenge it requires 4,000 words, you know, because it's complicated. And I think the onus is on us to kind of navigate that so that we're fairly representing different points of view but we're not giving most attention to the noisiest wheels, particularly if the noisiest wheels are just trying to disrupt the debate rather than participate in the debate.
0: What are the consequences if we don't get this right and we just stay on this path of polarisation?
1: Again, I think this debate is nuanced. I don't think we are entirely on a path of polarisation and we started this discussion with an essay that kind of disproved the point that showed that if you write well enough and present an argument well enough and with enough consideration, people will read it. So I think it's a solvable problem. I think it's just a problem we have to be really, really aware of. And it's part of the sort of much broader, bigger debate, bigger than just the media about polarisation, but we play a role in. I just think it's useful to think about it and particularly useful to think about it this year when both the economic debate and the debate about the voice are really important in Australia and, you know, could really easily both of them kind of spiral off into sort of polarized discussions that don't help much.
2: I think there's a bit of a sense of exhaustion about the hyperpolarization yeah. as well. So the yeah, way that true. that article went proves that there is an appetite for yeah. the nuance out there. And I think also it's interesting the, the way that um, the voice proponents are going out into the community to talk about the voice with people so they're training up volunteers and going around and having um, discussions around the dinner table which is a much better way to do it uh, rather than you know bombarding social media yeah relying
0: Um, on the algorithm
2: or relying on the (laughs) algorithm so I think it's thinking about different ways to have these conversations and it might be a 6,000 word essay but it also might be a discussion with your friend about (laughs) why you're voting in a particular way and what they think about it.
0: Next, Lost and Found. Hey, Laura murphy here. At Guardian Australia, we want to make sure you're getting the news that matters in 2023. Our morning mail and afternoon update newsletters are short and capture the most important headlines of the day. If that sounds good, you can subscribe for free right now by visiting the Guardian homepage, searching Guardian Australia newsletters or just downloading our app and you'll get daily notifications. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Let's start with you, Patrick.
2: Oh, For me, it's got to be the radioactive pellet that was lost somewhere oh. between Broome and Perth. Um, quite a serious issue, but some of the takes on it were very funny. Mm. You know, have you checked down the back of the sofa? Uh, <laughs> you know? um, but also, incredibly, they'd found it this needle in a. Lucky you know, it was radioactive. Long, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But um, so someone's going to be apparently fined for losing it. But the fine, maximum fine, is a thousand dollars. So
0: a thousand dollars for using a radioactive pellet. A radioactive wow. Pellet. So
2: uh, I think you get more for a speeding fine. There days.
0: was so much in that story. Like it literally fell off the back of the truck
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: through a bolt hole, <laughs> <laughs> and then it was so small that it could have been in the grooves of a tyre. And driven to Brisbane. <laughs> yeah, and I then
2: think, and then somebody overlaid the map of the area with you know Europe and it's. Somewhere like you know, from Madrid to yeah, uh, find something smaller than a 10 cent piece Piece. in mm,
1: Europe. (laughs) Yeah, uh,
0: amazing story. Lenore, what could you not get out of
1: your head? I really loved a feature we ran last weekend by Sean Kane about the uniting church in Melbourne that welcomes and celebrates LGBTQ people who might not have felt welcome in church for a long time and the short interviews she did with people in the congregation. It was just really joyful and life-affirming, and I really loved it.
0: Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more about the Chalmers essay, our political editor Catherine Murphy interviewed him in our sister podcast Australian Politics last week. You can find that in the Australian Politics feed. And this week she's interviewing the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. We'll be replaying that in the full story feed on Sunday, so look out for it. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Camilla Hannan. The executive producer is me, Gabrielle Jackson. And I hope you've noticed our brand new theme tune this week, which was composed by our very own Joe Koning. I hope you have a great weekend. We'll see you next week.